Oh, fuck. Um, yeah, so we're just gonna fucking go right into it because I don't really have anything, uh, written down. Um, but, I mean, we're gonna talk about the second essay that I posted, but I kind of want to go into some other stuff before that. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to, wanted to tell this story about a cop coming into my job the other day. Um, actually, yesterday. So, uh, this fucking, this cop pulled into the drive-thru, and he asked for, um, some kind of Nat Sherman cigar. I don't know. I don't know enough about cigars yet. I just started at this place not too long ago. And, uh, first of all, he's the first cop that has ever come through our drive-thru. Um, I don't think I've ever actually seen a cop in the store either. Um, but so right when he pulled up, I was like, eh, well, probably gonna not serve this guy but i was the only one there so i kind of had to do something Uh, i couldn't just fucking ignore him as much as i would have liked to uh so i kind of let him go on his spiel about what he wanted and then i went over to the cigar case where he could see me and kind of like stared at the uh humidors for like 30 seconds and then i ran back over to the drive-thru and i was like um yeah we don't have those and he was like really? I, I just came in yesterday. Um, and you guys had three boxes of them. And he was like, how did you guys sell through all of those so fast? And I was just like, kind of looking at my phone and I was like, I don't know, man, but we don't have them. So I saw him pull out of the drive through and he took a left right in front of our building and then a left down the very next road. Um, which meant that either, uh, he was taking a back road for some reason, or he was pulling into the parking lot to come inside. So I knew for a fact he was going to be coming inside. So I was like, shit. Um, so around like the same time, my coworker, um, Scott got off of his lunch. And when the cop came in, I kind of like ducked behind the corner where the cop couldn't see me and just hopped on my phone. And so he asked Scott, like if we had the cigars, Scott ran right over and grabbed like a, a box and, uh, The guy bought the whole box of cigars. It turns out we still had the three boxes. (laughs) Um, So the the cop was like, um, yeah, I don't know uh, about your buddy here who who was working a couple minutes ago. He must have disappeared. But uh, he told me that he didn't even uh, he didn't have any cigars. And uh, Scott didn't really know what to say. So he was like, yeah, I'm sorry about that. You know, maybe he didn't look all that well. And the guy go goes, uh, the cop goes, well, I'm sure he wasn't giving me shit for being a police officer because I'm sick and tired of dealing with that bullshit. And then he paid for his cigars and he left. And uh, I just thought that was really funny because, like, first of all, like, who, bullshit. You mean, like, people treating you the way you deserve to be treated for being a fucking cop bastard? But secondly, the fact that there was fucking three boxes of cigars. I didn't even think about the fact that he might just come into the parking lot and check for himself. Um, yeah, so there's there's that little story. Um, I wrote some other shit down on some notes that I don't have with me because I'm an idiot. Um, but I want to go ahead and talk about real quick. Um, so I don't know if you guys heard... But, um, well, my fucking, my emails wanted to load. Maybe I could actually look at this. 
sorry, I'm trying to get into my emails, click on some links. Um, yeah, so, I don't know if you guys heard, but so there's this thing called, um, COVAX. It's like a WHO, the World Health Organization, uh, initiative to, uh, create a global, uh, equitable access to any COVID-19 vaccines that they come up with. Um, so essentially what it is, is it's supposed to be like, I'll read. I'll read right here. Um, the global pandemic has already. Oh, this is uh, on the WHO's uh, website, by the way. The global pandemic has already caused the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives and disrupted the lives of billions more. As well as reducing the tragic loss of life and helping to get the pandemic under control, introduction of a vaccine will prevent the loss of U.S. of three hundred seventy-five billion dollars by the U.S. to the global economy every month. Uh, global equitable access to a vaccine, particularly protecting healthcare workers and those most at risk, is the only way to mitigate the public health and economic impact of the pandemic. So essentially, it's like this uh, world, uh, kind of like pact, kind of like um, you know the the Paris Treaty and all that shit, where like all the worlds come together to try to like share their information about vaccines with one another so that if one is developed that works, like, they can, you know, make that vaccine and distribute it out to their citizens, um, on, like, a, a need-be, um, level. But Trump and his administration have decided that the U.S., um, will not, in fact, be joining this, uh, global fucking group to, you know, try to, like, find a vaccine for, um, the pandemic, uh, let me go ahead and read to you what, uh, White House spokesman Judd Deere said, uh, so this is in an article posted by The Hill, um, and it came out, like, an hour ago, I think, um, under President Trump's leadership, vaccine and therapeutic research, development, and trials have advanced at unprecedented speed to deliver groundbreaking, effective medicines driven by data and safety and not held back by government red tape. The United States will continue to engage our international partners to ensure we defeat this virus, but we will not be constrained by multilateral organizations influenced by the corrupt World Health Organization and China. So essentially, this is like a petty thing that Trump's doing because China was one of the main heads that helped to head up this kind of group effort to create a vaccine. Um, and therefore, he doesn't want to join anything that has, quote unquote, bureaucratic red tape. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, all that this really does is kind of puts American lives at risk and really is a huge gamble for the the government to make because... Uh, as far as I can tell, it's in order to allow vaccines to be created by private industries and therefore sold uh, at a profit rather than giving it to a government or organization that will disp- dispense the vaccine at a rate of, you know, need rather than uh, who can afford it. So basically what this is is like trump saying like nah we're gonna sit over here and try to figure it out ourselves and then when we get it we're gonna charge people out the ass for it um so i don't know about you guys but whatever countries have signed this pack uh i'm moving to because this shit is getting ridiculous like coronavirus as a whole 
genuinely probably could have been handled around January, February, if all the countries that had knowledge of it really took it uh, at face value and took all the steps needed to stop any other pandemic that we've had, rather than saying that it's like the flu or we don't know much about it yet, so we're just going to continue society as it is. Like, if we would have shut shit down, really locked shit up, we genuinely could have had, like, basically, you know, very few amount of cases and deaths uh, across the world, but especially in the United States. Um, But because we as Americans and our government as a whole like to involve our ego and especially our money uh, in our government affairs, that kind of takes away the ability to kind of operate uh, collectively in the way that would have been needed and still is needed in order to uh, mitigate and kind of, you know, quote-unquote, flatten our curve. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like my intro shit I wanted to do, so let's go ahead and go right into uh, my essay. Uh, I'm going to read it right from my blog, um, and then we'll talk about kind of what I meant at the end of that. So uh, let's go ahead and roll the intro music. First things first, uh, I would like to say that I'm very excited because one of my friends is actually finishing up uh, creating one of like my actual intro songs, so I'm pretty excited to be able to put that in uh, my first episode coming up here soon. Um, but let's jump right into it. So, uh, Annoying Question Boy on Blogger.com, for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm going to read straight from uh, my blog. Uh, so... I posted this yesterday morning. It's titled, Essay Number 2, Why the Left Struggles in America. Um, With the upcoming 2020 elections fast approaching, Biden versus Trump seeming to be America's only viable options for possible presidential candidates, a global pandemic ravaging through the country, massive insurrections under the name or shared message of the Black Lives Matter organization, and many other things happening, 2020 is shaping up to be the year to end all years. This year and the events that have happened within this hellish era have proven to be somewhat, dare I say, useful. They, the events that have happened, I don't even want to name them all, have unfortunately, in fact, destroyed, if not ended, countless lives, and even more concerning is the reaction of our government to many of these difficult times we've been experiencing this year. But they have also helped, if anything, to shift some attention towards the obvious discrepancies between what we as American citizens have been told essentially our whole lives and our actual, physical, tangible reality. 2020 has been a great teacher in that sense, but the problems still persist that Americans are limited in their options for governance. On the right, of course, we have the Republican Party, which since the 80s has slowly but surely creeped their way into being the nationalistic, pro-American freedoms side of the political sphere, while the quote-unquote left Democrats are reserved to instead live in their shadows and become the Republican moderates from the 90s and early 2000s. With the two dominant parties in the United States working towards essentially the same end goal through quote-unquote bipartisanship and attempts to reach across the aisle, which is all a load of garbage considering they both are ultimately working hand-in-hand, 
This has caused an actual erasure of any political discourse within the country, due to the two-party system's combined interests being aligned. I will say in the last few months, due to COVID and everything else that has been in the news, many people are being forced into seeing the reality of the world around them. And for some, this is leading them to want to be involved in a bit more discourse, but just simply politics in general as well. But my questions that I am posing are simple. Is electoralism in the states dead? And if so, was it ever truly alive? And if it is dead, then what, what, what might we be doing about that? Of course, we all know by now the history of America and its government, how it was formed, and almost not at all about how it is in fact run. One thing that's for certain about the American government is that it is god-awfully confusing, at least to me. I'm sure there's much smarter people who understand it better than I, but this comes from someone who enjoys learning about government systems too. That is, of course, intentional as a means to deter working-class citizens from wanting to involve themselves or even feeling as if they can involve themselves in these things. But it is also a symptom of years and years of non-comprehensive governing done by our country's illustrious leaders. But this is all really irrelevant in the sense of our problem, because as it stands, we have a country whose government is a culmination of 60-plus years of lesser of two evils voting. This combined with the lack of political discourse in society, as well as in the country by our politicians and leaders, but also due to the lacking in government within our day-to-day interactions. This is important because Americans have essentially shot themselves in the foot. Now, this is not to say that these systematic problems are at all American voters or citizens' fault. That's impossible. But our lack of recognition of these problems can be boiled down to somewhat our general population's fault. With November briskly approaching, we are in between a rapist and an orange rapist, a former segregationist and someone who was sued in the 80s for segregating his apartment buildings. With many impending dooms that seem to be sitting right around the corner waiting to pounce, we are left stranded as American voters and helpless to do much of anything, it seems. Our government has once again abandoned us for the 1% and left us to fend for ourselves. There is little to no part of me that believes that any candidate with a viable chance to win right now is going to any do anything substantial to affect real change for the working class people of this country. This decline of the American empire seeming to begin to hit double time, and now yours and my own lives are on the line. Because the fact of the matter still stands that two parties are acting in lockstep with one another, ultimately working towards their total consolidation of power. The only reason that the two-party system still exists is to operate under the guise of choice, that the American people have a say and therefore are free to elect whomever they choose. It's a democratic ploy. But I would stress once more that the lack of discourse combined with the obvious failure of American electoralism is the cause for serious concerns. Without discourse, or without opposition beyond the Democrats versus Republicans opposition, which is theatrical at best, you will see absolutely no evolution towards systematic, effective change. What you see, especially in America, is in fact the opposite. We are continuously moving away from any representative government and simply leaning into this idea that either a Democrat or Republican must win, or even are the only ones who can win the elections. This is an aesthetic replacement of identity politics for discourse, a path that we have been jogging down for quite some time. People like Trump, Warren, and even further back like Bush are all capitalizing on the same thing, 
this one idea of politics that people are looking for. Things like Trump's Make America Great Again, or maybe even Kamala Harris's, quote, burn of Joe Biden during the debates earlier this year. These things are what voters as a general population seem to care about. It's all simply aesthetic. Policy and discourse are removed and instead with replaced with one or two basic characteristics that see, set each candidate apart from one another. And this is what changes people's minds and what they look for in a candidate. So now the question becomes, is this something that Americans can vote their way out of? In the past two decades or so, lesser of two evils voting combined with hypernationalism, militarism, and all these changes after 9-11 that happened to lead us to a place in 2020 where our candidates are so far removed from actual material reality and therefore help to create this confusing facade of which many voters are distracted by and vote alongside with. None of the candidates that seem to have any chance of winning in November have offered any policies or practices that they plan to put into action in order to help save America from the impending dooms that are waiting to take over at any moment. Coronavirus seemed to point out some very awful systematic issues within the American government and society. This combined with the virus itself and the damage it has done to our job market as well as the major recession we're beginning to see now, we are left out to sea with nothing but a stick and a voting ballot. While most Americans still believe that they are the freest citizens in the world due to their ability to vote, we are seeing that these votes count for ultimately nothing when we, the citizens, have no say in deciding who we'll be able to vote for. With years of no working class representation within any of our government systems federally, it's hard to know what to do when November comes every four years, other than go with whatever identity politics seem to be somewhat close to working solidarity and class consciousness. Americans haven't seen themselves represented in, in politics in generations. This creates a feeling of removal of wanting to or even being able to participate in politics within this country. Almost 40% of the population or more doesn't vote just about every presidential election. That's unheard of. With the removal of working class needs like Medicare for All, worker solidarity, social programs, etc. from the debate stage, many Americans find themselves voting for nothing that is going to affect real tangible change in their own lives. And this is the key to disheartening and de-incentivizing a people's want to vote. Most Americans seem to vote based simply on one single layer characteristic or idea that they agree with the candidate's idea of, or simply just along with their party, as well as name recognition, which I didn't put in there. Um, in the last few decades also, people seemed to instead just simply be voting against a candidate instead of even voting for one that they wanted. That's how bad it has gotten, that we as Americans have accepted this fate as this have accepted this fate. Oh, the fact that we as Americans have accepted this fate is disastrous. It seems to me that national level electoralism within in America is kaput, considering there isn't a federal level candidate that represents the very needs of the people who they're trying to get to vote for them. Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and many others that have come before them simply stand for one class and one group only. The capitalists, the 1% class, and people who have held power over us as citizens for far too long. This elitist class appeals to the masses by two ways. One, being the American ideal of what a president should look or sound or speak like. This idea that the president is very important is commonplace for many average Americans. 
The role that the president serves in the people's eyes is certainly not parallel with what the position is actually capable of. But again, this is intentional. The second way that candidates are able to appeal to the voters is the same avenues that culture has gone down to to help erase the necessity and value of truth as a whole. Candidates get up on the stage and lie blatantly. They scapegoat to remove their guilt from anything that they or their party has done wrong and try to convince you, the voter, that you in fact are similar to them, or rather, that they are like you. Take someone like Trump who appeals to his voters by, quote, saying what's on his mind or, quote, speaking straight, no bullshitting, even though 90% of what comes out of his mouth is, in fact, either a lie or simply a, quote, stretch of the truth. He appeals to a newly ostracized group of people within American society. Some of the older generations with leftover racist, sexist, xenophobic, homophobic, and transphobic ideals, etc. And also, oddly enough, to the Christians within America, he seems to have a leg in as well. They, those he appeals to, sadly are a sizable voting bloc. This combined with Trump's narrative of being a Christian has led those in America who do not care about voting and do pay attention to follow in line with him even though many of them are voting in direct opposition to their own self-interests. This is the epitome of what identity politics is, as well as a clear indicator of the disconnect within American culture and society and politics. After 250 years of elitist policies and practices being all we could look to as the, quote, American way, constant disappointment of the American people when time and time again they are without representation in the federal level elections, combined with almost no change positively in the material conditions of the average working class American, many have turned their backs on voting as a whole or even simply paying attention to politics at all. This mostly affects left-leaning or progressive voters as they are commonly the ones who go without a representative candidate more often. This is where my assertion that electoralism within the United States is dead comes from. It seems to me to be a useless practice at a national level, considering there again is no working-class representation, wants, or needs on the table, especially not with any candidate who has an actual viable chance at winning. The only left party in America with any real political power is the DSA, and they have been, or seem to have been, co-opted by light white liberals or progressives, or such is my impression. Why is it then in America, with so many disenfranchised by their own government and the two parties over the last 50 to 100 years, that there hasn't been a sizable, cohesive mass movement for the left to embark on our own mission for change? We, the left, have the tools to move hearts and the understandings to help the working class to make attempts to form their own working class party, or beyond that, a successful revolt, rebellion, or revolution. So what is it that's standing in our way? Well, firstly, we live in an oppressive, late-stage capitalist society, which most of us are therein forced to endure and support to some extent. This support, to some, conflicts against our convictions and therefore disproves our theories, and that is such a simplistic view of the world if we are, that if we are to flip it on itself and direct it towards them, it would disprove their ideals and conviction as well. For example, if you believe in democracy, why is it then that you are voting in our elections, which, as I already discussed, are very much not democratic? None of the parties are representative, none are of 
none are of nor for the people. And most have no opportunity to create sustainable change, and yet you vote for them. Or beyond that, you engage in capitalism. How dare you? Capitalism is the furthest thing from democracy because it intrinsically is exploitative. The extension of one's own liberties is usually what some, somewhat of an oppression of someone else's. This is, an anti, this is anti-democratic to its core, and yet we as Americans continue to endorse and participate in it because it is what we are allotted by living in this hellscape land. The second thing, in my opinion, that's stopping leftists is where we are in history and also geographically. In the United States in 2020, with culture so wrought with consumerism, selfishness, and corruption, miseducation, lack of perspective and empathy, and many other societal problems, it's hard to see a future where we have an organized left here. But the point of being a leftist, at least in my eyes, is the conviction you feel to make the world a better place, not only for yourself, but for every working class citizen of the world, for a lack of better terms. To give enough of a shit about the world to try to change it is the most key characteristic to any leftist person or ideology. Do not let this be a message of discouragement. It is always the left's goal to push for an organized people and existence. Never let anything stop you from trying. This is also not a message to say that you may not feel discouraged, that you can't feel defeated or weighed down. But it is to say that we must also persevere out of this place and out of those feelings. We must hold one another in high enough standard to not critique nor judge one another as we feel down, defeated, or miserable. But it is also our job to be there after this feeling passes to help lift one another up and continue fighting on together. These are a few of the things, quote, stopping us from organizing a viable party or beginning a revolution. But also, it is time that we are truly lacking in. The world that we live in today is not one that inspires hope in many, but that can also in and of itself be used as a motivational tool to get to a point where we do live in a world that inspires hope. I, for one, cannot handle a worse day or dawn than we are seeing now, so I will work in the areas in which I can try to stop that from happening. No task is too small, but the time is nearing a close, and soon enough any change that the left or anyone can make will possibly be for naught, as the earth itself will be too close to its own demise. The ultimate destruction under capitalism, our home, is fast approaching. So mourn and heal from your wounds, cope with your strife and struggles, and then when you can, get back up. Never stop fighting, never stop caring for one another. Um... So, to basically sum it all up in uh, the the tidiest way possible, um, I I am someone who believes that electoralism as it exists today on a national level is essentially useless. Um, I will probably, I haven't decided for sure yet i will probably not be voting in november that's not to say that you shouldn't vote i mean obviously that is your decision to make but what i am saying is with joe biden and donald trump being the two real uh possibilities at president come january uh it seems that voting as a whole within that election is useless 
uh, when you recognize that neither one of these candidates has anything but their own personal interests as well as the interests of their uh, funding partners and the rest of their elitist class uh, um, why can't I think of the word for like group whatever their elitist group that they're in is who they work for if that's not evident to anyone then you haven't really been paying attention but um I mean neither one of them seem to really have any structural or systematic policies that they plan on implementing in order to actually solve any of the problems that we're facing like coronavirus isn't going to go away in november this 32.7 drop in gdp is not going to go away in november these millions of jobs lost just completely gone are not going to come back depending on who's elected in november so kind of what i'm saying is until we have a actual working class people's party at a national level with a viable chance to win elections every four years, then myself, uh, I don't see a a point in voting. Um, I mean, I might vote for Howie Hawkins. Um, my endorsement would probably be for Howie Hawkins if I was granted an endorsement. Um, but my kind of second point that I fall into is um, why it is that the left is kind of incapable of gaining a sizable mass movement in this country. Um, of course, we talk about the fact that this is America, which is a fucking oppressive capitalist state, and many people are so indoctrinated by society here and by, you know, consumerism and stuff that anything that is against that is kind of to some extent against themselves. The way that Americans kind of teach history and politics is like as a subset of each citizen and therefore like the people of America place part of themselves and their personality in, you know, who they vote for, what kind of politics they have, um, which is important. You know, your politics should be shaped by your wants and needs as a citizen, but also through education and understanding of politics. Um, many people in this country have no real understanding of the political spectrum outside of Democrat versus Republican. And many of them don't even understand those two parties because many Americans still feel that the Democrats are this far left radical group that Trump keeps trying to demean them as, which isn't true. I mean, most of the Democratic Party are people that probably would have ran as Republicans 10 to 15 years ago. Um, so, I mean, there's that. And then the second reason why the left can't really form a mass movement is because we're kind of in the worst time possible to try to form a mass movement. I mean, with coronavirus, like, you know, ravaging through our country and taking millions of lives, or sorry, destroying millions of lives, taking thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, it's And, you know, the inability to... Uh, come together and organize in person kind of makes things a bit difficult. Um, some say that the internet could be a useful tool, but the problem with the internet is, uh, I mean, I mean, you don't know who the fuck everyone is on the internet, really. It could be anyone with that profile picture and that name. You know what I mean? 
Um, but even beyond that, the internet is not a, a place for, like, actual discourse because a lot of, like, reality is removed from uh, discourse on the internet. Um, a lot of it is too theoretical and too perfectionist. Like, for example, in a lot of, like, left quote-unquote forums that I'm on, on social media, there's a lot of infighting and stuff like that. And that all has to do with the perfectionism that online leftism really leads towards. Because it's this idea that, you know, if you're on the internet as a leftist, then you have the ability to educate yourselves. And therefore, you should be able to find, quote-unquote, the perfect government system. But two things with that. One, I... I I don't want to fucking read theory. It's boring. Like, I, I, I've i read Capital and I've read State of Revolution and I've read a few other, like, contemporary critiques of, you know, some old theory. But, like, that shit's boring and I don't want to read it. And the second problem with that is, like, this idea that something has to be, like, you know, on each level functioning perfectly is not necessarily possible and therefore not what we should be looking for as leftists. What we should be looking for as leftists is systematic change that can actually be created to actually affect material change in the working class people's lives of this country and this world. So with that, I kind of wrap it all up in a tiny bow by saying like, you know, Right now fucking sucks. And it, it's so hard to not get disheartened, to not be depressed, to not look at, you know, politics and even just society as a whole as a leftist and just want to blow your brains out. Um, it's okay to feel that way. Like, I think a lot of problems with uh, leftist culture online is this idea that like, all right, we got to keep organizing, keep trying. But it's like, there has to be time to mourn. There has to be time to feel depressed, to kind of get those feelings out. Because without that, one, we're not operating at like full potential. And two, you're going to see a lot of cracks and uh, break-offs within uh, leftist culture due to this idea that like people can't feel fucking sad sometimes and not want to like be involved in discourse and attempting to organize. 2020 has been a hard year for a lot of fucking people. A lot of people. And that's perfectly okay to feel the feelings that comes with that. But again, as I said, you know, it's important that we as leftists uh, remain true to our convictions to want to create a better world. And after these feelings pass, if they do, we get back up and help one another try again. Um... I also kind of briefly talk about how the earth is basically on its last limb. Um, so if change doesn't happen in a relatively short time, we might be fucked. Um, and that might just be how it is. And I, I don't know. Nobody knows. But that shouldn't be an encouragement or a discouragement to anyone. That should just be a fact. Um, and you can work with that how you see fit. Um, so the final point I'd like to make is... Um, the fact that just because as of right now the left is, you know, kind of in this limbo state within America does not mean that, one, that's all that it can amount to be, and two, that, like, we should just stop here and take what we can get. Like, as I said, the left's main 
key characteristic is this ability to give a shit about one another enough to want to change things. And so that won't end and that won't change. Um, so, I mean, with that, I guess I can say like, fucking keep on doing what you're doing, guys. I mean, don't, don't think that there's any task small enough that you as a leftist can do that is not worthwhile. I mean, I do this podcast, I do a YouTube, I do a blog, and I kind of, you know, write my own essays and stuff like that, and I try to talk to people that I know about this shit, um, and sometimes I feel like a fucking chud, I feel like, you know, I should be out in the streets, um, breaking shit and fucking shit up, but, like, one, that's not always possible for everyone, I live in, like, kind of, not rural, but basically, like, rural, uh, central New York, and, like, there isn't shit happening here. So, like, for me to want to get involved, like, boots-on-the-ground type shit, I have to, like, seek that out. And that's not as easy as many people on Facebook want to tell you that it is. Um, My final uh, thought for this podcast would be um, probably stop... Stop spending your time... Arguing with people on social media or arguing with people in person who aren't at a place where they're ready for change. Um, Right now, the most important thing for the left is to collect ourselves and try to move forward. So the last thing that we want to do is get into a bunch of fights on Facebook with conservatives. Um, So keep on doing what you guys are doing. Um, You're all amazing. Uh, Just... Keep on, you know, doing what you got to do to feel good about uh, yourself and, you know, kind of like your politics and shit like that. But also allow yourself to breathe, guys. Life isn't all about politics. Um, Allow yourself to enjoy life a little bit here for a while. Um, I'm going to go do that now uh, with a little lady named Mary Jane. So uh, to all of you who have made it through to this point, I appreciate you. Uh, Thank you for listening, Um, and we'll skip right into this totally not pre-recorded outro. What's up, guys? Uh, If you've made it this far, thank you. I appreciate you. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed uh, this episode. If you didn't, just know that there is uh, many other episodes for you to listen to and possibly find more of your niche, 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 whatever. Uh, Not Nietzsche, definitely not him. Um, also, uh, if you did like this, well, you're in luck because I wrote a bunch of other episodes that you can listen to just, uh, just the same as those who didn't like this. Uh, again, like I said, I have, uh, a podcast, which you're listening to that is available on, uh, multiple different platforms, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, Anchor, Spotify, uh, that way, if like you you know found this on one uh, uh, streaming platform, you can find it on another that works better for you. Uh, I also do a YouTube uh, channel, which I have done a couple videos on, and I'm working on the fifth called Annoying Question Boy, obviously. And then I have a blog, which I read from in this episode, uh, that you can find on blogger.com, also titled Annoying Question Boy. All of these links are usually available in one or more of my social medias. 
which if you don't follow already, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Annoying Question Boy. Uh, go ahead and give me a follow. I follow right back. I'm very desperate for followers and very lonely. So thanks for that, guys. Uh, yeah, so like, have a great day, um, night, whatever. Uh, get high, drunk, do whatever the fuck you want. Just stay safe, stay healthy, uh, and keep on fighting for a better tomorrow, guys. Love you all. Have a great day or night or whatever. I don't know why I always try to say that because I don't know what time of day it is that you're listening to this. So have a great whatever uh, and we'll see you next time.